0: Stephen Charnock, the English Puritan, in his classic book, The Attributes in Existence of God, he writes, Satan paints God with his own colors. Satan paints God with his own colors. In other words, one of the great strategies of Satan is to make God look just like him. To portray God as a big meaning, as one who wants to keep that which is good from you. That's one of Satan's great deceptions. He's been doing it from the beginning when he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then he says, uh, uh, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. God's withholding something good from you, Adam and Eve. Satan twists who God is. And probably never more is that more obvious and more clear when it comes to God's good gift of sex. That he gave as a wedding gift to humanity to be enjoyed within the context of Marriage between a man and a woman. We see the ramifications of that in our own culture in the 1960s, with the innovation of the birth control pill, and with the legalization of the murder of the unborn, so-called abortion. What has happened in this country is the promise of the sexual revolution that that this gut, that that You just need to take off the shackles of Christian ethics when it comes to sex, and you will be happy and free. That was the promise that was made way back in the 60s. But what has it brought about? Between the year 1850 and 1950, in this country, the Percentage of children born outside the context of marriage ran between three and five percent. Since 1960, the numbers have just climbed and climbed. So we have so many children growing up without two parents. The foster care system is overloaded with children. Sexually transmitted diseases abound. The untold number of heartache and sorrow that has been brought about by going outside of God's bounds when it comes to sexual ethics. Has the promise been delivered of freedom and happiness? No. It's just brought untold human misery and heartache. But it's still being propagated as be free, do whatever you want. If you want real happiness, the real enemy is anybody who says what you do is wrong. But when we look at the scriptures, we see that God, God is the one who has invented and designed sex. It is His good gift. Some of the purposes that God has given for sex within the Scriptures is, first of all, it is a ratification of the marriage covenant. Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We also see that it is an expression of love inside the context of the marriage covenant. All you have to do is read the, the Song of Solomon. We also see from Scripture... Its purpose is procreation. Who knew? Children. Genesis 1 27, 28. Be fruitful and multiply. We've tried to divorce the procreation of children from the intimacy. But you actually can't do it. Children are going to come about. It's also given as a gift of pleasure. God has made it enjoyable. And also for the prevention of adultery. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God has given it as a gift within marriage to prevent going, seeking that outside of the marriage covenant. And so, here we are in Leviticus chapter 18 where there's these Prohibitions against perversion of God's good gift. Now, when we're looking at... Now, now a little bit of the context of Leviticus. Leviticus... <clears throat> Moses wrote Leviticus and the context is the Israelites have come out of Egypt... God has delivered them. They're not yet in the promised land. It's not going to be, uh, you know, till the book of Joshua that they finally go into the promised land. So they're in the desert. And so, in a very real sense, Israel, the Hebrews, are living between the exodus and the promised land. In a very real sense, it's similar to how Christians today are. We've been delivered out of this world but we're not yet in the promised land. You know, we just sung it, almost home, but we're not there yet. But this promised land will be far better than that promised land, which proved to be something of a dud because of man's sin and failure. But also, as we're going through the book of Leviticus, sometimes it gets challenging because clearly Leviticus was written in a specific time and place for specific people, who are living under a theocracy with God as king, <clears throat> in, in the context of the tabernacle worship where there was all these ritual laws related to uh, approaching God in the tabernacle. And so sometimes it gets a little bit challenging sorting through what prohibitions apply to me today and what were specific for Israel back then and don't have direct application while there may be some application today. Well, let me just give you a couple questions to ask as you're reading through Leviticus or really reading through the Old Testament in general that, that might help you out in this regard. And by the way, this is an age-old debate. As long as uh, you know, the church has been around post Apostles, there has been a debate, how do we relate to the Old Testament and these commands that God gives? First of all, you can ask yourself the question, is this command or prohibition repeated in the New Testament? That kind of makes it a no-brainer, right? Okay? If it pops up in the New Testament again, then you know it's for New Testament believers, okay? Is it mentioned before the giving of the law in the Old Testament? In other words, as we read through the book of Genesis, uh, you know, is it something that, was, that we find before even God gave the law uh, during the book of Exodus and Leviticus? That's a pretty good indication that it, it's something that's from creation, that it's, it's a moral law that, that, that goes beyond the specifics of the Mosaic Covenant. Another good question to ask is, It is the command uh, uh, something that is a ritual or ceremony that was fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament? Now, now again, that, that makes it fairly easy. And so when we're going through all the blood laws of chapter 17, uh, you know, we, we realize that the blood was for atonement. The blood was for sacrifice in the Old Testament, None of you brought sheep or or cattle here this morning for sacrifice, right? Uh, You understand, that's fulfilled in Christ, okay? So again, that's a no-brainer that, well, it's applicable, but not in the same way. We don't do sacrifices like we did, like they did back then, because that's been fulfilled in Christ. We don't go to a tabernacle today that was part of the worship system of the old covenant that was fulfilled in Christ. Also, another good question to ask, is the command related to some principle in creation that transcends cultures? So, some of the commands, it becomes evident that these are creation principles that that go beyond, that went beyond the walls of Israel, the walls of Jerusalem. Um, Like, for instance, when Jesus is talking about marriage, he, he, does, he, he says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. He goes back to creation, back to Genesis. I, I would say, these commands that we see here in Leviticus chapter 18, all except probably one of them, were, were inherently part of creation order. Because God says he was vomiting The pagans out of the land because they were practicing these things. In other words, they knew they shouldn't have been doing these things because they were created by God. Also, is the command related to some of the civil laws that were unique to Israel with God as king in a theocracy? For instance, with these different prohibitions, as we alluded to last week, all of them were capital crimes. Death penalty. And so while we may not implement the death penalty for adultery or incest or these different prohibitions as we're going to see, uh, there's still applicability, right? We see that God is still opposed to these things even though we don't live in a theocracy where we would implement these, uh, the punishment for these certain prohibitions. So those are just some, some questions that may be helpful to you as you read through the book of Leviticus, as you think through the Mosaic Law as to what is enduring in its, uh, in its applicability for us today as New Testament Christians. So today, the rest of our time, we're going to think through three mandates, uh, three mandates that God gives For Israel and ultimately for us. First of all, the mandate against incest. Now a couple things in order as we read through this. First of all, God is giving these commands, this prohibition, specifically for the men. And so it's always related to the man and his relationship to women. Secondly, this also assumes, as you read through it, Genesis 2.24, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that to uncover the nakedness of, of, of the woman was to uncover the nakedness of the man in that relationship. Also, this language, as I just mentioned, to uncover the nakedness of is a euphemism. You know, this is not talking about, you know, accidentally seeing your uncle walk around in his underwear. Um, This is talking about uncovering nakedness as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Just like we may use the euphemism to sleep with somebody. We don't mean, you know, sleeping on the couch or on the floor. We, We mean the sex relationship. And so what we see here in verses... Six and following are 12 different prohibitions, 12 different illicit relationships of near relations, okay? Now, again, here's something else to think about, because often it comes up as we see these prohibitions against incest, well, you know, who was Cain's wife, right? Did you ever hear that? That's common atheist objection, Um, Who was Cain's wife? Well, it's obvious, Cain's wife was his sister, right? You know, Adam and Eve had Cain. How did Cain procreate? Well, he had to have married his sister. And so these commands were given later on in the history of Israel. Evidently, early on, these, these near relations were not prohibited because they were necessary for procreation, for filling the earth. But after some time God gives these commands, as we're gonna see, is part of his goodness. Well, first of all, he prohibits relations between mother and stepmother in verse seven. You shall not uncover the or I'm sorry, the general statement we see in verse six, none of you shall approach any blood relative to uncover his nakedness I Am Yahweh. So here's the general statement. He's talking about near relatives. Now there's a sense in which we're all related. Right? We all come from Adam and Eve. We all come from Noah. But near relations are prohibited. Relations with near relatives. Verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife it is your father's nakedness again having relations with one's mother or stepmother is here spoken of as uncovering the nakedness of the father because of that one flesh union and also keep in mind here Leviticus comes after Genesis this uncovering of nakedness, we, we first see this language way back in Genesis chapter 9 with the story of Ham and the uncovering of the nakedness of Noah. Verse 9 incest with sister or stepsister. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. And then drop down to verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness, a stepsister. Incest with granddaughter. Verse 10, the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover for their nakedness is yours. Incest with aunt. Verse 12 through 14. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. For she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. Verse 15. Incest with daughter-in-law. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Sister-in-law, verse 16 through 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. She is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Now, in verse 16, there's this prohibition here against taking your brother's wife. Now, we, we see in the Leveret Law of the Old Testament, God had actually given a provision if, if that brother had died to take the, the, the hand of the, uh, the brother's wife to provide for her and also to provide the offspring so that the, the offspring would be considered that brother who had died, their lineage. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. This would be the, the one prohibition that it would seem in this context that is probably part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because remember way back in chapters 12 through 15, I called that the, kind of the yucky parts of the Bible where especially there was talk all kinds of stuff about bodily fluids and contact with blood and things like that. How it made one unclean. And so to have relations with a woman during her menstrual cycle, was to come into contact with blood, was to make oneself unclean and unable to approach the Lord in the tabernacle without the proper uh, cleansing. In fact, if you, if you go back to Leviticus 15.24, this law comes up in that context. It says, if a man lies with her uh, so that her menstrual impurity is upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now, so in, in Leviticus 15, it says this person was to be unclean, regarded as unclean for, for seven days. But then, when we, if we were to fast forward to chapter 20, it calls for the death penalty for a man who has relations with a woman during her menstrual cycle. So what's the difference? Well, it would appear that the difference was the chapter 15 law was related to someone having relations with a woman during her cycle that it was unbeknownst to them. Whereas chapter 20 is dealing with someone who flagrantly defies the law of God. But again, those blood laws coming in contact with blood was to come into contact with death. And that was related to approaching the living God In the tabernacle. And one was prohibited from approaching that God. And that's why I think this law does not have its enduring applicability. In the same way that what we're going to see these other things. These other prohibitions do. And that becomes important because. Obviously when we come to the command here permitting. A, a, a man to lie with a, a man as he would lie with a woman they immediately say well you know this previous verse speaks about having relations with a woman during her cycle and you don't believe that and so this doesn't apply today well no you need, we need to think about these things within their context so we got through that section <laughs> So if we simply ask the question is is this an enduring are these enduring prohibitions? Uh, I mean we do see even with the patriarchs Abraham it was evidently uh, Sarah was a a near relation to him. But do we see these commands come up in the New Testament? Well we, we actually do. We do see prohibitions against incest in the New Testament. For instance In Mark chapter 6, when John the Baptist is confronting Herod, he points his bony finger at Herod and he says, it's not lawful for you to have her as your wife. Why? The woman that Herod was currently married to was his brother's wife. And so Mark records this, Matthew records this, in the New Testament. Also we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 and following. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says to them it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and an immorality Of such a kind that does not even exist amongst the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. And you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead. So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part though absent in the body. But present in spirit have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus that when you, are, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. So here is this guy who's evidently having relations with his father's wife, evidently maybe his stepmother, And in verse 2, it says the church in Corinth had become puffed up, proud about this. They had a a pride gathering over this. They're applauding their liberality. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. No, you guys should be weeping over this. This man should be put out of the church... Because with his lips he may say Jesus is Lord, but with his life he's living to the contrary. And so we see this enduring prohibition against sexual or marital relations with near relatives. And for some of you in this room, it should give some measure of hope. What do I mean by that? When you look at statistics, roughly 30% of women say that they have been sexually abused at some point in their life. 20% of men. In a room this size, no doubt there are not a few of you who have been sexually abused. And in many instances, this is at the hand of a near relative. And you need to know, God is not okay with that. God abominates that. God saw your abuse and he will hold accountable. Whether the law courts that exist in this country hold such persons accountable, God the Almighty will hold such persons accountable. A woman by the name of Minnie Warbutton was abused as a child by her father. In her adulthood, she confronted her father about it, but he would not confess his wrong to his dying day. Then one day she read Leviticus. Anybody who questions the value of Leviticus should read the article that she wrote. She says, quote, I remember clearly the moment and the words leaping out at me. Incest taboos one after another. I slammed the book shut. I was shocked. I had no idea that was in the Bible. My father was six years dead. I never knew that he was breaking God's law. But there it was, clear as anything. I will never be able to explain what that moment was like. The discovery of Leviticus 18. I wanted to call up everyone I knew and say, It was wrong. What he did was wrong. It says so right here in the Bible. So there's some of you in this room who need to know it was wrong. It was wrong. And you also need to know that God is a good God. In his goodness, he's the one who's given these commands. You, you think of the nomadic culture in which the Hebrews lived in during this context as they're in the wilderness. Where, where, where relatives are living in such close proximity to one another. You think of the history of ancient civilizations where, again, so often relatives were living so close to one another. God gave these commands because family is supposed to be a safe place. And it's only in a wicked and perverse world that twists God's good gift that it tragically becomes a place of danger. You need to know God is good and he knows how twisted and wicked man could be. You read a passage like this and and again on the one hand you think, well, God really had to give these commands? Yes, he did. Just like he does today. I told you the numbers already. And those, you can read many studies across the board, the numbers are that high. but God is a good God and His law is holy, just, and good. And it's only when we in our wickedness twist the gifts that He gives that we do so to our own misery and heartache. But then there also might be some out there who are not The abused, but the abuser. And again, in a room this size, there may just well be. And you need to know that you may be able to get away with this. You may be able to evade the human law courts, but God Almighty sees it. And he is opposed to it. And the best thing you can do before you stand before him on the day of judgment is to come clean and come clean as soon as possible. To repent of your wickedness. To confess it to the Lord. To confess it to even the criminal justice system. To own up to whatever consequences are needful. And hide yourself in the Lord Jesus who yes wonder of wonders even forgives That kind of sin. He does. In fact, it's kind of shocking, but I read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This man having relations with his stepmother. Well, there's a very high probability that same man is mentioned again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, "...sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him." This man who evidently had involved himself in an incestuous relationship, repented. And the blood of Jesus avails even for sexual immorality. Oh, friends, what a great Savior we have in Jesus. He pays the price for the most grievous of sins. But you have to come clean with Him. You have to be honest with him and with yourself and with others around you and repent and turn towards Jesus. We thought that section was awkward. Moving on, not only mandates against incest, mandate against bestiality. Or so-called zoophilia. Reading verse 22 and 23. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. We'll talk about that in upcoming weeks. Verse 23. And you shall not have intercourse with an animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is... A perversion. You think back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2. Remember in verse 18 and following after God had made all these benedictions in chapter 1. God created this and he saw that it was good. And then that climactic benediction over all of his creation in 131 When he says, it it says, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But then in chapter 2, and verse 18, he looks at man, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Remember that one? Some of you men are nodding. I agree with that. In verse 18 of Genesis 2, it says, Yahweh God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh. God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds and, call, and called a living creature and that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. For, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for, for him you know so God brings an elephant and Adam says elephant pretty impressive beast wouldn't want to marry it (laughs) and all these animals are brought before Adam and there was not a helper suitable for him not one corresponding to him like him but compatible with him not exactly like him and so after all that, you know, in verse, it says, So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, I think in verse 21. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Verse 22. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this one finally is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And so from the beginning, from the creation account, God had designed woman for the man. Because after all the animal world was brought before the man, it was concluded none of these were suitable for the man. But again, in man's wickedness and twistedness, he would pervert and have relations with an animal. Well, this happened in the ancient world. Roy Gain, in his commentary says, Unlike the Bible, Ugaritic mythology describes bestiality by deities. For example, when Motu threatens Baal with death, the latter seeks to guarantee himself a form of afterlife through progeny by repeatedly copulating with a cow, which conceives and bears him a male. This is not so surprising because mixed beings were common in the realm of the gods throughout the ancient Near East. And so it was part of the ancient world. And what a testimony of, again, the wickedness of man's heart. The beasts of the world are satisfied with natural connection. John Calvin says this. It is therefore a gross enormity that this distinction would be confounded by man, and endow- man endowed with reason. For what is the use of our judgment in intelligent faculties if it be not that greater self-restraint should exist in us than in brute animals?" And by the way in case you didn't know this is hidden behind the plus in our culture. They don't come out right and say it but it's there. And the only and one of the few things that will restrain it in our culture ironically will be the animal rights people. You think I'm kidding? Last year I read an article looking at hundreds of members of the online zoosexual community. Many of them who feel that they have been treated unfairly by the mainstream. One individual commented, I sincerely hope that one day genuine zoophiles can turn the tide. However, bearing in mind the current attitudes in society, this won't be easy. So, there speaks an advocate for zoophilia. But then animal rights activists say bestiality is abusive. When Ohio recently moved towards outlawing bestiality, Lane Lasseter, an animal cruelty policy director at Human Society, said, quote, the passage of animal sex abuse legislation is a great victory For animals in Ohio. Again, what a testimony to man's wickedness. And by the way, all these sexual perversions are are kind of on a continuum. You know, you know, it starts in the mind. And moves towards pornography and then might move towards, uh, you know, adultery, move towards homosexuality, move towards incest, move towards bestiality. And all of it is twisting God's good gift that He gave within the confines of marriage. I mean, imagine with me for a moment. Imagine as a parent or a grandparent, you, you save up money to be able to buy your, your child a, a car for their 17th birthday. And you're delighted to give your child this gift on their 17th birthday and you, you wrap the keys in a box and they open it up and it's keys to a brand new car. And then about a year goes by And you get the shocking and horrifying news that they've been arrested. They've been arrested for drug trafficking and human trafficking. They've been using the gift that you gave them to distribute illegal drugs and to sell other human beings. You would be appalled. You would be horrified you would be thinking, that's not why I gave them this gift. And this is what humanity does with God's good gift of sex. And so again, this requires repentance wherever it be found. It requires confession. Third mandate more close to home, the mandate against adultery, verse 20. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. We see this come up with the seventh commandment, right? In Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. To have relations with one, with a person who is not your wife is contrary to God's standard. We see it come up, not only here, I mentioned the Ten Commandments, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5. God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. We see it come up in Jeremiah chapter 7. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery and swear falsely? We see it come up in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13 verse 9 for, uh, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see it even come up in the Gospel of John, remember? In that, that questionable account in, in, in John chapter 8 with the woman who was caught in adultery. And, and Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. C.S. Lewis stated almost prophetically, chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. In, in, in the, the backdrop of all this, God says when one enters into a marriage covenant with their partner, they are to be faithful to them. They are to be committed to them. They are not To seek relations outside of that marriage covenant. And to do so is to breach that promise that they've made. And this again highlights that God is a God who loves faithfulness. Why? He is faithful. He is the God of faithfulness. He likens His relationship to His people as a marriage covenant. He is the husband who brought Israel out of Egypt and wed himself to them. Jesus, or or the Apostle Paul, exhorts husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That God calls for fidelity inside the marriage covenant because he, Is the faithful one. And to commit infidelity. Is to be contrary to his character. And so. Husbands, wives. God calls you to be faithful. Faithful to your marriage partner. To have eyes only for them. It is an interesting thing, you know. So much of the world rails against the God of Scripture, you know. Get outside my bedroom. But the standards of Scripture go far beyond even the bedroom. It goes in, even into your own mind, right? Remember, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, even if you have lust for another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in the heart. And that's where it starts, right? That's where repentance begins. Turning away from those sinful thoughts, those lustful desires. And so there's perhaps some in this room who are practicing adultery. Again, God's calling you to repentance this morning. Full throttled repentance. Wholesale turning back to Him. Confession of sin. Confession to your spouse. Confession to those around you. And turning, vomiting it out of your life. God is a God of forgiveness. But if you continue in this sin, if you continue in this trajectory unrepentant, and die and stand before almighty God. There's a very good chance Jesus will say. Depart from me. I never knew you. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators. Nor idolaters nor adulterers. But then there's also some in this room who may be pondering. Maybe you're not practicing, but you're pondering. There's that coworker. There's that classmate. There's that neighbor. And you need to repent. You need to turn. Again, Satan is going to throw all kinds of lies your way. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. As I heard one recent speaker say, he will make you look more attractive than you even are. And you need to repent. But the good news of the gospel is that 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 doesn't have the chapter end there, does it? He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. But you were Washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. This amazing God who sees all that you've done, whether it's in your mind or whether it's in practice, He is a God who forgives, but you must turn back to Him. He is a God who is merciful. He loves to take prodigals back to Him. And to fall upon them and smother them with his love. But you have to come back. You have to take that posture that says, I am not worthy to even be a slave in my father's household. I will go back to him. And he will say, My son who was lost is now found. The blind now see. God is merciful and forgiving. But you need to turn back to Him. Well, let's pray.